Welcome. Let's begin to have a seat. If we don't have enough seat, are we okay seat-wise? Everyone's got a seat? Good, good. Um, well, good morning. How's everyone doing? Happy summer. We expected none of you to be here. <laughs> um, yeah, this week, uh, like Wednesday or Thursday, we got a call from uh, the manager of the space, and he went, so uh, the LA Opera has decided to use our space. Um, it's great for us. It's helping us pay the rent. Uh, so unfortunately, we don't have a space for you on Sunday. And I went, what? <laughs> uh, and then I went, are you, are you sure? He's like, yeah, positive. And I went, really? And then over the next few days, he was like, OK, well, maybe we can make this work. So basically, they have been so generous and so incredible uh, for letting us use this. And I don't know, like a little resonate history lesson here. Uh, about two years ago, actually exactly two years ago, um, we approached uh, the same guy who's manager of the space and kind of just said, like, hey, you know, at that point, uh, we were like 10 people strong, five more on the board, four were family members. So it was a, it was a strong group. Uh, and we were like, I just, we're not going to be able to swing uh, doing this anymore. We're going to have to look for an alternative space. And he literally was just like, what's, what's it going to take to keep you guys here? And we were like, I don't, I don't even know how to, like, how to navigate that question. Um, and he just said, well, how about, we, how about we just cut it in half? In half. And we are like, that we could do. <laughs> so it's literally like they are one of the key components to why we're still here, why we're growing, why we're thriving. Um, so we're just like if you ever see uh, Leo or Darren, who's sometimes hanging in the booth, just tell them thank you, um, give them a hug, be weird. <laughs> uh, but yeah, they're they're just they've been so gracious to have us here. Um, let's see. This morning, we are at we're nearing the end of our series. Uh, we didn't put an end date on this series, but I've been having to read the news cycle very intently for the past like eight weeks, and let me just tell you. I'm going out my mind. So we may be done pretty soon uh, with Broken Colors, but I've loved it. Um, basically, what Broken Color is, and I always love explaining this next to Bobby, who is a legitimate artist, um, Broken Color is a style of art or a technique. Uh, and we do have that painting, Sean. Beautiful. And if we just dim the lights just a hair, beautiful. So what you see here is the style of Broken Color. And what that means is that each brush stroke is not connected to the brush stroke next to it. So at the time that this came out in France, uh, the, the style was ultra photo realistic. You wanted to make your portrait or your painting look as real as humanly possible. So when you looked at it, you wouldn't even be able to tell that it was done with a brush. It looked like it was just a photograph that was taken. They didn't know what photographs were then, but you get the point. Um, the new impressionists came out, and impressionists started out as a bad word. Like they told them they're just impersonating art. They're not doing the real thing. And the impressionists in the classic artist move went like, yeah, that's totally what we are. So they ran with being impressionists, and they went outside, stopped doing so much portraits, but started painting real life. They said, like, look, you're trying to do the ultra-photorealistic thing, and it's actually not as real as this. See, this makes you feel. You have to put together all of the dots, all of the broken color, all of the different brush strokes to make a cohesive narrative. So for the first time in, in art history, this is the artist in Paris, France, giving more trust to the viewer than ever before. To say, like, we trust you, and we trust what you're going to see here. And the whole point is that the, all the broken colors mashed up and put together are supposed to accentuate one single thing. So what we decided in the series is we here at Resonate tend to use the Gospels a whole lot. And that comes of a pendulum swing of being in churches where the Gospels weren't preached as much as we loved. So we did a lot of the Gospel, and we've done that for two years. And so what I wanted to do is actually use more of this giant collection of stories and beautiful poetry that we have in Scripture and in the Bible and pull from all over the place using the different brushstrokes to accentuate the same thing every week, which is our news cycle. 
Uh, and how we've done that is we've used a really nerdy Bible book called the Lectionary. And the Lectionary will take you through most of the scripture in three years. And right now, if we're going like really nerdy, there's a year A, there's a year B, there's a year C. Those are the three years. And we're in year B, and we're right after Pentecost. So we're in this mode. And what's really cool about going with the Lectionary is that we join in the tradition of a ton of other churches around the world that are talking on the same passages this week. Now, to be completely honest with you, all we're going to talk about this morning is the gospel, because, you know, we're back in, back in the saddle. Um, but the point is we want to pull from all different books and all different narratives to tell a cohesive story. Um, and as often happens in this series, uh, I had something I totally wanted to talk about, um, and then Thursday, Friday rolled around, and it became very, very important and very, very, like, just obvious that we couldn't talk about anything else. So I want to, I want to just warn the room here, this is going to be more of a serious moment. We're known as a happy, fun, go-lucky church. Um, this one might be a little more serious than usual, but it's something that I really think we need to talk about in church. Uh, we lost two very prominent people uh, to themselves uh, who took their own lives this week. Uh, we lost them to suicide. Uh, and what's even crazier, I don't know if you guys got this, but I got a push notification earlier in the week uh, with an article that claimed suicides in general are on the rise. And then we saw two celebrity suicides this week, and it became just the national narrative. So here's the thing I want to say at the top. It's a very complicated issue. I am not an expert, and I cannot solve this. But here's the thing I do know. For me, if you don't like to make phone calls because you're an introvert, and even a phone call scares you, and you don't know how to reach out and you get help, there is a, there's a text line. And I'll put this number up for you. You can text this number, text CONNECT, the word CONNECT, to 741741, 741741, and you will receive help via text message, then a call, then a therapist, then anything that you need. We have to say this, because in these spaces, this is often where we paint on our strongest face. This is where we put on our Sunday best and everything is good. And that, here's the thing, that's awesome, and we need spaces of joy, we need times to celebrate. We need huge celebrations in church. We also need to look at our Bibles and see that a whole lot of the scripture is actually lament. It's actually hurt. It's actually responding to pain. God, why am I in this place? Turn your face towards me. Look at the Psalms. This is, this is interweaving with all the joy. It's just up and down and up and down and up and down. But what it causes us to see is that sometimes lament is actually the proper response. Lament is actually biblically affirmed, and it's something that we should do. We should cry out and say, this is not OK. See, we're remarkably good. And this is so weird. We have a perfect picture of what perfect should be. We know exactly what that should look like. And yet we're fallible and imperfect. And so we have such a hard time attaining that. But for some reason, we have such a vivid image, image, a vivid image of what that actually means. If you look at any social media accounts, any sort of like ads, all of this stuff is causing us to believe a perfect narrative when that's not really perfect, that's not really attainable. And the walk with Jesus is to walk into this world and say like not everything's gonna be perfect and that's actually where you get the joy. That's the whole broken color of it all, the fact that it's all tangled and messy, and it all connects somehow, and that connection is actually Jesus. So as we engage with what it means to uh, treat each other like family, to love our neighbors, we're going to talk about how Jesus calls us to each other, because a lot of this, like right now, here's the, here's the strongest thing I can say. Text your, text your strongest friend. 
Text the friend you believe has it all together. Text the friend whose Instagram account looks like God on, on earth. Text that person because those people often need help. If we learn anything this week, success, fame, money, all of that stuff cannot buy you happiness. And in fact, a lot of times when that stuff comes into your life, it raises the stakes even further. And those people need our help. And as Christians, as people who follow Jesus, we're actually called to jump in. We're going to tell some stories of people who jump in this morning. Let's see, what are some fun ones we got for us? We're going to talk about, we're going to go real deep into history, so forgive me, but we'll do a little history lesson. Um, and then uh, I'll talk about my love-hate relationship with horror movies, and then we'll go to uh, Satan, and then we'll go to family, and then we'll finally end with believing in Jesus. Sound good? All right. <laughs> Let me, uh, let me pray for us as we get started. God, uh, I'm, just, I'm just struck with the fact that um, the idea of suicide, the idea of taking one's life, is something that's not alien to us. Uh, I think the likelihood that uh, almost everyone in this room has been touched by that in some kind of a, a way whether it's through a friend or a relative or a friend of a friend or a family member, we all somehow know the story all too well. And God, I, I truly, truly pray this morning we could, um, we could shed light on how much you love our lives, on how much you love us right here, right now, and how things do get better and how your story points us to that. Lord, be with us in this space. Let us accomplish awesome things. Um, let us just uh, grow closer together. Amen. Uh, so we see these stories, and you know it's, it's a constant barrage these days, but there are two ways to engage with a story, with a news story, with a story, with a person, anything like that. And the first way is passive. So you're just a spectator, right? So you're listening to a story, and you're literally just letting it wash over you. You're letting it entertain you, maybe. Like I would say that most movie going is passive stuff. Like you're, you're watching it, and you're letting it just affect you. Uh, and then there's a second way. Uh, which Augusto Boll, who's this uh, director and huge political force, figured out, and he called it a spect actor. And what that meant is that when a story is told in such a way, it actually changes the person. The person becomes an, an actual, there's an expectation of participation in the audience member from the story. This is not only reading a story, but it's letting the story read you. You're participating, and you're actually enacting and engaging in the story. And I think we need a whole lot more of that kind of engagement as we look at the text, as we look at each other, as we experience the stories of others. I think the call of Jesus is to jump in and not just be a spectator, but be a spect actor. There's one person I know that does this extremely, extremely well, and that is my wife, Chelsea. Um, as, as some of you know, uh, Chelsea's on summer, which is, she's now dubbed Summer Chelsea. Summer Chelsea loves rosé, and Summer Chelsea loves waking up, asking what we're going to do today. And Josh hates the fact that I have to go, I have to work. Uh, but <laughs> she's in full summer mode. Uh, and we go to the movies a lot. We have movie pass. It's, it's one of our favorite things to do. Um, for like a pastor, it's kind of an escape because the lights go down. And in, the, in that moment, you're sort of like, no one can get me. It's, it's a great <laughs> feeling. It's like a mini vacation. So we'll go to the movies. Uh, and I've never experienced anyone else who's done this. And maybe you guys have. Uh, and I love it. I think, it's the, I think it's the funniest thing and the cutest thing in the world. But um, Chelsea's the only person I know that will cry during a movie trailer. So a trailer <laughs> will come on, and Chelsea will be so moved by that story that she will literally begin to tear up uh, and cry. And I think it's remarkable. I'm like, that took like three and a half minutes, and they got you. Like, these are designed for you. Um, not only that, like, 
if I'm out in a way, one of her favorite shows is, uh, is Parenthood, and then This Is Us. Both are just designed to wreck you. I don't understand why people like these, these, these shows, uh, but I'll leave and I'll come back home, and they'll be on the couch, like, and the puppy's like, right here just staring at her like, I don't know what to do, and she's just <laughs> crying, 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 and I go, why do you like this? She's like, it's just so sad. There's, like, there's no joy in it. It's just like, it's just so sad, but it moves her, and she reacts to anything and everything in such a profound way. And I am not like that, except for two things. One, Nicholas Sparks movies, because guys admit it, they're very good. And then number two is horror movies. I believe that the most moving genre is truly horror or scary movies. And here's the deal. There is no other genre that is geared to physically move you. You will actually jump. You will move. You'll get out of your seat. And I am the biggest like, sucker for those like, jump moments. And you all know what I'm talking about. It's like when it gets really, really quiet in the theater. And then you know, you're like, oh gosh, something is going to go boom. And then this huge, loud, thunderous sound comes out of the speakers, and then monster reveals itself. And then you go, ah! And in Signs, the movie Signs, there's that scene. Uh, I don't know if you remember this, but there's just a scene. It's expertly done. It's like this weird, shaky footage. And then all of a sudden, you hear this loud, and then an alien walks just like really fast. That scared me so badly that I threw a soda over one of the rows, and it hit someone. And I had to leave the theater. I've never seen the full movie of Signs. Like, so I'm not good at this stuff. And it's a jump scene. And what that, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, it's called a jump scene. What that does, and, and if you're smart, you won't jump, right? Because you know what's coming. Like, it has all the classic telltale signs. Like, there's someone alone. They're like, I'll go check this room. You're like, oh, shoot. Here we go. They go and check that room. The sound goes down, and then we expect something. But here's a new thing that happens, and ooh, I hate it. It's when in newer movies, they understand that you know what's going to happen. And so you think, like, oh, I'm the smart one. I got this here. By the way, quick trick. If you don't want to jump, just plug your ears. Yeah. It's, the, it's the quick. Anyway, um, so <laughs> they figured it out. They figured out that we have figured it out. And so what they'll do is a fake-out jump scene. And that is the most infuriating thing because <laughs> then you realize that they're actually smarter than you for a little bit and that one really is going to come, and it's going to catch you off Guard. So what they'll do is it'll, everything's happening, sound is going down, someone's alone in the room, and then they'll open up the door, and then you think something's going to go, and like a mop will fall out. Like it's, it's an anticlimactic moment to teach you, like, we understand that you expect something, but you're not going to get that yet. And we are the storytellers, and we are going to choose when that happens, and we're going to get you. <laughs> it's really great. We pay money for these things. So that is a jump scene. But what that does is it creates an expectation. It changes our minds about what we thought we knew. I thought I had this down pat. Now something new is coming to the scene, and I've got to reorient. It sets us up for change. It sets us up to move differently. And I think that there is one particular. Uh, oh, by the way, I should notice that we, we are doing an art project this morning. It involves the kindos. Um, and, and we're going to be talking about a house divided. So that will make sense later. Um, there's one particular gospel. So there are four gospels. These are books in the Bible uh, with the red letters, meaning Jesus speaks in these, and they tell the story of Jesus all together. And the first one that's originally written is not the first one in chronological order. So it goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you did a wanna like, you, like I did when I was a kid, these are engraved in your head like Matthew, Mark. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew is not the first one that was written, however. The first one that was written was the gospel of Mark. And the Gospel of Mark is fascinating because it tells a different story. And so when we look at the Gospels and we see that there's all these different, like, like these things don't line up. 
So if you're reading them and you read one back to back, you're like, wait, I thought in this one he said this, and then in this one he's saying this. And a lot of times, if we're reading these things literally and reading them quickly, we'll look at that and we'll just go, oh, this is a contradiction. That makes this wrong. But the answer is that each one of these Gospels was actually written for a specific group of people. I'll say something kind of radical to you right now. The Gospel of Mark is not written for you, but it is written for you. Does that make sense? That's kind of a cheating way to do that. But it's not written for you, but it is written for you. Gospel of Mark was written in a really specific context in the year, around the year 70 CE in Rome. And so the deal here, I mean, let's go into the history of this a little bit. Uh, there's two different things. We have a, a little tiny subsect of the Jewish people that are living in Rome. And here's the deal. If you wanted to get anything done politically, entertainment-wise, anything in the whole world, you would have to go to Rome at this period in history. Rome was the hub. It was the center. If you wanted to affect change, you went to Rome. Later on in the story, we have Peter and Paul, who are the early church fathers. Peter was actually one of the disciples hanging out with Jesus, and then Paul uh, experiences the risen Jesus on the road, and they both end up going to Rome, because if you wanted to affect change, you wanted to start something new, you had to start in Rome. But from the very, very early onset, the Roman emperors just did not like these Jewish people. And they did not like the Messianic Jewish people in this crew. They followed something called the Christus, which meant they were of the belief that the Christ had come and that that was Jesus. And at this time, those two groups are kind of co-mingling. They haven't separated, and they're not completely separate. They're still like sects of the same religion. And they're coexisting, but there's tension. There's a lot of tension, so much so that in the year 49, this sort of revolt breaks out in the Jewish quarter. And then I got a like, kind of like little geography thing. Here's like Rome's center, and then the only space that the Judeans could set up was a little bit further outside the city in a marshland, and that was called the Jewish quarter. So they're surrounded in a marshland, in a wetland, and that's very important for what's going to come next. So that's the only space that they could provide. And so the Messianic... Uh, Jews begin to kind of fight with the traditional Jewish people, and then an eruption kind of happens, and there's this, there's this coup that happens. Who will win? And it turns violent for half a second, and the Emperor Claudius at this point looks at that, and he says, we cannot have that. Kick them all out. And so you have all of the Judean people who are now exiled. And then 10 years later, a guy named Nero, a new emperor, says, no, 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 let them come back in. So they retake over their swampland, and they're there, and they're living in kind of peaceful situations with each other. Now, Nero uh, had grand visions as an emperor. And you've probably heard the name Nero if you study any kind of Roman anything. He's this really famous emperor. But one of the things that's most famous about him happens to be fire. So Nero uh, is emperor, and this grand fire breaks out. And Nero had all of these plans to rebuild Rome. He wanted Rome to be even more magnificent than it was before, but none of the politicians of the day wanted that to happen. They just thought, this is too expensive, it's dumb, let's move on to other things. Let's conquer more nations, that's what we're good at, let's do that. And there was like, why well, don't I build this city so that I can be known as the person that built this city? And so what happens is this enormous fire erupts and it wipes out Rome, like big time. Like it, it wipes out most of the major structures there, it takes almost everything. And so rumors begin spreading around the politicians because that's what they're good at. And they start saying, well, this must have been Nero because Nero wants all of this new stuff done, so it must have been him. And Nero quickly, like a good politician, turns this around and says, we need to find another scapegoat. We need to find another person we can put this on, because this can't be on me, and it looks way too obvious, and we still don't know if it was him or if it wasn't. 
It's not important. What's important is what happens next. He begins to look geographically at Rome and understands there's a certain group that could not have been affected by the fire because they live in a marsh. They live just a little down the way from the city center, and they're surrounded in sort of watery lands that fire wouldn't be very conducive to. And so he says, hey, it's these Jewish people that started this fire, and they've always been trouble. We've had to exile them before, and they've come back. It's these people that are the problem. And even worse than that, in a division amongst themselves, they had to choose just out of bitterness because what was happening is the Roman soldiers were coming in and they were executing people. They were crucifying hundreds of these Jewish people, public executions, and then lighting the crosses on fire just as a double down, like never do this again. And so what do you do in your community if if you know they're coming for you? Unfortunately, The real human way to deal with this was to scapegoat someone else. If they're going to come after me, I need someone else to put the blame on. Who's a smaller group within our group? It's these Christos. It's these these Christians. These are the ones, and we're having trouble with them anyway. And so reluctantly, they start blaming them and say, no, they're the real problem. And so Rome exclusively wipes out a vast majority of the Christian nation. When Jesus says weird things like, I've come to turn brother against brother and daughter against mother and father and son, he's talking about this time because what would happen is if a Roman soldier knocked on your door and said, we've heard you're a Christian, come with us, it's execution time, your only out was to name someone else. And if you could name someone else, your life would be spared for the time being, and they had no choice but to go for execution. So this caused friend to turn on friend and neighbor to turn on neighbor, and it's this awful awful, awful series of events. And that happens around the year 66 CE. Remember, Mark is written in the 70s. So this is the first half of his audience. But we have to dig even deeper to see how how deeply affected these people were at this time in history. There's a bigger story going on. There's a reason a lot of them ended up in Rome, and that's because around the year 66 CE, another thing is happening in their hometown of Jerusalem. So uh, Jerusalem is under siege. Basically what's happened is there's this really big group of, of militant Judeans, and they call themselves zealots. And they've been around for about six decades, and they, they do nothing but revolt. And here's the deal. They did that because they truly believed that that's the only way that the Messiah, the Christ, would present itself. Because in the last days, in the, in the earlier days, and earlier in their story, God would only fight with them if they had the bravery to go do the fight themselves. And so these guys believed the Messiah will come, we will overthrow this government, doesn't matter how big it is, because we have God on our side. And this kind of mindset still exists today in a lot of different religious groups, and it's a very harmful one. Even in our daily lives, when we take on this sort of idea that God is on our side, bad things can happen. Because we believe in us and them mentality, what we're going to find The family gets bigger, the story gets bigger, the gate gets bigger, the kingdom gets bigger, and all of a sudden you can't really go. God is on our side and not on yours. So the zealots keep erupting. And funny enough, they're from a town or a town sect called Galilee, which is where Jesus was near from. Uh, And that was the predominant narrative voice in that community, which meant, like, it's a a little akin to, like, if you're in California, you're going to encounter a lot more left-leaning people, and if you're in the South, you're going to encounter a lot more right-leaning people. 
That's kind of what this was like, except you were leaning militant, <laughs> right? So you were, if you were in this basic geographical area, that was the dominant narrative. That's kind of what you were expected to believe in. And so when Jesus comes along, and it looks a little bit different, you do the math, and he's from that area. They're like, this doesn't look anything like it. Anyway, a guy named Floris, great name, Floris, uh, who is like sort of the heir of the day, comes through and decides, we're running low on funds. We need to get some funds to Rome because that's their key job. We need to rob the temple. Now, again, when Jesus says stuff like, where your treasure is, your heart will there follow, right, that kind of stuff, the temple was the key area and the key hub where they would keep all the treasure for the nation of Israel. It was the place where your treasure was. So when he's saying that, it's like your treasure's there, so your heart is there. And a lot of times that's a critique of you're focusing too much on this religious portion and not enough right here. So next time you hear that in a sermon about money, just kind of realize there's another meaning to it as well. But anyway, Flores decides to steal a vast amount of silver. The Jewish people hate that, and this gives rise to these zealot guys who have been ready for this all along. They're like, here's the match moment. We're the powder keg. They just lit the match. Boom, let's get them. And here's the thing. They win. They win big time against the Roman Empire. And this only creates more people going like, ha-ha, I knew it. The zealots were right. I'm joining them. And so more and more people get more and more militant and more and more fired up. And then they believe to say, like, oh, I think, you know what? I think we can take them. So they begin, like, really militarizing and really getting in. But here's the thing. Pesky little detail here. Rome is an empire. And what an empire does to a group of farmers that are on an uprising is they decide to dramatically crush them. So they bring in 60,000 Navy SEAL-esque troops, and they come in to Galilee, where most of those zealots were hanging out, and they wipe out over 100,000 people and then sell even more into slavery. Now, just those numbers can wash past us really easily when we just kind of think of this in a historical aspect. But I challenge you guys to think if your phone just went off right now and you found out that anywhere in the world 100,000 people lost their lives. 100,000 people. Now remember, there's still all this stuff going down in Rome. And it gets even worse. The temple in Jerusalem begins to get fortified, and all of the Galileans who escaped that terrible massacre came down and began blaming the religious leaders in the temple because they weren't militant enough, and if they had been more militant, God would have been on our side, and we would have been able to destroy them. So surely, it's your fault. And they began killing each other off, which created the weirdest moment of civil war ever. Both sides had people posted on the walls in Jerusalem to keep Rome out as Rome's huge legion army has come down there. And Rome, because they're smart, as most empires are, they just basically sit there and let them fight it out amongst each other. There's starvation going on. There's terrible stories of family turning against family. And then finally, when they're weak enough, Rome strikes, and they knock Jerusalem to the ground. And here's the most staggering stat I can give you of all. In this four-year period between 66 and 70, it is estimated that they could have lost as many as one million Jewish lives. One million Jewish lives. You have that story, you got Rome, and then along comes a guy named Mark. What needs to be said to a group of people who have experienced such pain, such hurt, such loss, such misunderstanding? Where is God? Is God dead? What's happening? Why is this happening to us? It doesn't look like anything's going to be getting any better. It just seems like we keep getting pummeled and pummeled and pummeled. This is the atmosphere that these people are living in and dealing in. They're looking at each other skeptically. 
will he turn on me? Will she turn on me? It's my own family. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to think about it. So the great question of Mark, this very first gospel, is what will you do with your sorrow? How will you use your sorrow? What's really interesting about Mark, a lot of people don't even hear about Mark because uh, our two biggest holidays, Easter and Christmas, are not really included in that narrative. There's no birth narrative. There's no genealogy at the beginning, which kind of speaks to this whole tension between families. There is simply Jesus arriving on the scene, and then even more shockingly, at the end, there's an empty tomb. But in the original way that this book ends, there isn't even a Jesus coming back and talking to them. So the main message of this gospel, and the reason it's put second chronologically in our order, is to say that, hey, the life that Jesus led and the lives that he interacted with during his life matter. They matter so much to God. In your loss, in your pain, you matter. And the Gospel of Mark is less about Jesus comes, he's born, he dies, he comes again, and then all of a sudden, heaven. And all of a sudden, we're focused more on what's happening over there than the lives that are around us. And here's Mark's real jump moment move, just the same as in a scary movie. The, the narrative begins with a proclamation. The gospel is at hand. The kingdom of God is near, so repent. This is the way this begins. And a gospel is a military victory statement that Caesar would send out. It was called the good news. It was like a little like, paper that would be spread around town telling them what nation they've conquered next. So right away, Jesus is coming in, and we're saying there's a gospel, so there's a victory? What the heck? And then, to make it even weirder, this guy John the Baptist shows up and declares a stronger one, and that's just something you gotta hold on to for a minute, it's not gonna make much sense now, but declares a stronger one even than I, and he's proclaiming in the desert, and he's baptizing people, is gonna come, and he's gonna, he's gonna bring the kingdom of God, and then Jesus gets baptized, and he proclaims the kingdom of God is at hand. All of a sudden, you got this real politically charged, real crazy, driven statement, and then what do we expect to happen next? This is where the music goes down, we're like, yeah, 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 here it comes, here it comes, and then all of a sudden, we're like, he's going to go get his army, and then what does he do? He goes and finds fishermen, <laughs> fishermen. So what Mark is doing in the very beginning of this text is offering a chance to change our minds. You thought it was going to go this way, you saw the music going down, but it's actually going to go a very different direction. And that's what leads us to our very strange uh, lectionary text this morning. Uh, let's read this together. This is, uh, this is out of Mark, and, and to give a little, uh, little pretense here, this is sort of during the beginning of his ministry, and um, he's just been, for the first time, he's been given a death threat, which for Jesus, this is a pretty common thing. So anyway, uh, then Jesus entered a house, and again, a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he's out of his mind. And the teachers of the law came down from Jerusalem and said, he's possessed by Bezebel, uh, by the prince of demons. He's driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him, and he began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up, then can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. 
But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived standing outside. They sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mothers and brothers? He asked. Then he looked at, the, at those seated in the circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. So uh, Mark, the whole book, is actually a critique of what's going on in Christianity, what's going on in Judaism at the time, of thinking God is on our side, so we will win in a military victory. He's critiquing, and he's going, no, 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 no. Like, he is on your side, but God really, really cares about you. He cares about what's in here. He cares about your heart. He cares about how you're loving other people, and he cares about family. So in the grand tradition of Mark, we're going to look at this passage and kind of at first glance say three ways we're doing this wrong. the first thing we can look at uh, is there's a strange passage about Satan. Is Jesus Satan? That's doing it wrong. Uh, number two, it seems he's kind of obsessed with home invasion. There's a binding the strong man moment, like we got to tie someone up to then rob their house. Strange. And then number three, Jesus doesn't seem to like his family very much. Right? So these are three different ways that if we first just read this very quickly, we're going to look at this and go, oh, okay, obviously these are the things we're going to be wrestling with. But each one of these because we now know the historical implication, are going to come out just a little bit differently. So the first one, uh, let's, let's talk about um, Satan. So basically, uh, what would you do if someone came out with a similar viewpoint or business idea or strategy or something that you were already doing, and they tweaked it in such a way that now that's more appealing? You would try your hardest to either up your game in quality, or if you wanted to be real cheap and easy, you would try and discredit them as quickly as possible. We see this happen in politics all the time, right? Like, we will try and dirty their name so that now we can't possibly trust this person. And so what the Pharisees are doing, and I'm sorry, it's not actually the Pharisees. The Pharisees get a bad name in all of these stories. Uh, but what the scribes are doing, so basically these are people that have come down from Jerusalem to come check Jesus out because he's making waves and they don't like it, is they're there to discredit him. They're there to be the power moves, the power figures, to go like, this man is blaspheming. He must be with Satan. Because if he's not with God, there's only one other alternative. He's with Satan, and he's of Satan. And then Jesus responds with this beautiful argument where he says, a house against itself cannot stand, or divided against itself cannot stand. And a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. And all Abe Lincoln hermeneutics aside, hermeneutics is a really fancy word for how the Bible is uh, perceived and and translated. Uh, Abe Lincoln looks at that and he says, okay, yeah, so our country is divided against itself. It won't stand. True, 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 true. But what Jesus is talking about here with the house and the kingdom, those are euphemisms because the kingdom is this kingdom of David that these guys are trying to protect and the house is the temple. And so he says, you guys are already divided enough. And Mark's readers would have thought about the moment that the zealots come down and the scribes are there and they're fighting against each other. And they would have thought about the Messianic Christus Jews and the the regular traditional Jewish tradition fighting against itself. And what Jesus says to them is, you're already doing that. You, you actually must be with the other side. So when he says, how can Satan drive out Satan? He's not talking about himself. It's like, I can't drive you away, or you can't drive yourself out. I have to drive you out. Satan cannot drive Satan away. And so he flips the argument 
on their heads, and they stand there a little stunned. And then he continues, and he goes into this idea of the strong man. So again, remember I told you to hold on to the idea that John the Baptist comes along and says, a stronger one than me is coming? Basically, when Jesus says you have to bind the strong man, what do you need to bind a strong man? A stronger man. And what he does is he binds their argument because he speaks with more authority, and he speaks with more honesty, and he speaks with more clarity. And what's really interesting is that word bound is only used one other time in that book, and it's when Jesus is taken. They say Jesus is bound, and he's taken. So how does he bind the strong man? He gets bound himself, and he lays himself down for his friends. Instead of a military uprising, instead of this, he actually sacrifices himself. And then even further, and this is the most important for us in this topic right now. He says, who are my, who are my mother and my brothers? Now, this might look like Jesus is just wiping away the idea of family, like forget about it. But he's actually extending it. The only other thing besides religious systems that would have these people locked into a certain way of life was your clan or your family. The clan idea in this time in history was the axis of your entire existence. It showed what you were going to do when you grew up. It showed who you were going to marry. It showed what circles you were going to run in and what level you were going to do that. And what Jesus is saying is we're never going to move forward if we keep looking at these same systems that keep resulting in death that keep resulting in massacre, that keep resulting in heartache. And so the question for us is, when we read this stuff and we hear these stories, and I'm sorry, that was super nerdy and historical, but moving on, when, when we engage with this story, are we passively listening to this, or are we able to engage and jump in? Are we willing to let this story change us, that all of a sudden family is bigger? But all of a sudden, we have a responsibility to those around us like we would our own family, and we need to reach out, and we need to help, and we need to love each other. That there are strong men in every sort of instance in our culture that need to be bound, and that takes us all working together to be able to do that. Here's a story that I hope could change us. In Nazi uh, Munich, uh, there's a, a lady on the bus, and she's a, she's a Jewish woman. Uh, and the tradition was at this time is uh, you would sit on the bus and then stormtroopers would come on board the bus and they would check the papers of everyone there. And it got to a point that if you were a Jewish person and you did not have your papers or you were a Jewish person and you had your papers, you were taken off the bus and you were placed in a different truck and you were driven off to no one really knew yet. We now know. So she's sitting on this bus and she's mortified because she realized she's forgotten her papers. And the guy next to her uh, looks at her and he says, what's wrong? And she says, well, I, I've forgotten my papers. I'm going to be taken away. And this man that she does not know begins screaming at her at the top of his lungs, just like, you always do this. This is every bus ride we take. How could you do this to me again? And then as the stormtroopers passed, they said, what's going on? And he said, this is my wife. She always forgets her papers, and she's done it again. The stormtroopers laugh, and they walk away, and they move on. That woman never knew that man's name. That's a story that can change us. That looks like jumping in. That likes, looks like binding ourselves and putting ourselves in risk and laying our life down for our friends because the family is now much bigger than it ever was before.
Here's the biggest trap we fall into, I think, in Christianity. We're often, talk, we're often talked about, about believing in Jesus. But I think it's believing in Jesus, and it's also believing Jesus. Do you believe what he has to say? Do we actually believe him, or do we just believe in him? Believing in him is wonderful. It's good. We should do that. I affirm that wholeheartedly. But a lot of time, we just set that aside, and we say, I believe in him, said the magic words, ding, dong, ding, boom. But if we actually believe him, then we have no other choice than to jump in and start participating and treating other people like family, because he says some pretty crazy stuff. Lay down your life. Sell your possessions, give them the poor, redefine family, heal, do all of these things. That's what believing in Jesus looks like. The book of Mark has three different accounts where Jesus literally lays out what's going to happen to him at the end of the story to his disciples who are following along. And symbolically and just very profoundly, weirdly, each one of those three times, they don't get it. And they don't respond. And he says, literally, here's what's going to happen. We're going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to get taken. I'm going to get like whipped, put to death, and then I'm going to rise again on the third day. And then they'll change the subject to something completely wild. The first time it happens, Peter then rebukes him and says, no, that couldn't happen. And then Jesus responds, get behind me, Satan. If you are called Satan by the Son of the living God, yeesh, get behind <laughs> me, Satan. Right? The second time, he lays it out. Here's what's going to happen. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. They're going to put me to death. I'm going to rise again on the third day. And then they don't say anything, and they're walking along the road, and then they begin to argue with each other over who is greater. And then they get caught later because Jesus is like, what were you guys talking about? And they're right over here. And they're like, no, nothing. Who's greater? And he's like, yep, you're still not getting it. And then the third time, he says, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. They're going to put me to death. I'm going to rise again on the third day. What happens? But these two brothers named James and John waltz right up to him, and they say, which one of us is greater? And could we sit at your right side and your left side when this all goes down? They're all thinking that what's going to happen when they reach Jerusalem is not what Jesus is saying. They're not listening to what he has to say. Until we get to the very first Christian, or what scholars point to as the very first Christian, and it happens to be a lady who owns a very expensive vial of perfume. Um, this is what happens. Is that, that slide, Sean? Okay, so a lady breaks in to a dinner party that they're having, and she pours on a very expensive vial of perfume, anointing Jesus. There are two symbolic gestures in this. One is the fact that you would anoint a king, and then two, you would also prepare a body for burial in the same sense. And so it picks up here because the, the disciples are all bickering, and they're saying, you could have given that money to the poor. We could have used that money. We need a new camel, all this good stuff. But moving on, it says, but Jesus said, let her alone. Why are you giving her a hard time? She has just done something wonderfully significant for me. You will, have the power, you will have the poor with you every day for the rest of your lives. Whenever you feel like it, you can do something for them. Not so with me. What she did, she could when she could. She pre-anointed my body for burial, and you can, you can be sure that wherever in the whole world this message is preached, <clears throat> what she just did is going to be talked about admiringly. That's a huge statement at the tail end of that, because we're not often telling this story, but Jesus claims every time we tell the story of what happens with Jesus, we should also be talking about this. The disciples don't get any kind of statement like this. Here's the thing. 
Jesus is walking around telling exactly what's going to happen. And the only thing that sets this lady apart is that she believes him. She says, oh, if that's really true, I might not have another chance to do this. I need to do it now. I need to do it right now. Believing in Jesus looks like that. It looks like rushing into the room and doing something brash and beautiful because you may only have this moment right now. Let's pray together. God, thank you um, for your story, for your gospels, for the differences that are in them that can teach us so much about you. And also, we thank you for the, the fact that we do believe you, that we're people that actually take what you say seriously. And then as we're hurting and as we're in great, great pain, sometimes that idea of just believing in you is not enough. And we need to believe in a God that would bind himself and lay his life down for his friends and us and his family, which he includes in anyone who loves you. So I thank you so much for this morning, and I thank you for the relationships that can form in this room uh, and the bonds that we can have. Amen.